Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today I'm speaking with Fabio Cuniel. Fabio is a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Cell Biology and Genetics and Center for Systems Biology, Dresden. And Fabio and I will be talking about Markov models and uh, data structures. So that's an interesting mix of statistics and computer science. Fabio, welcome to the podcast. Hi. So you wrote this uh, preprint. Is is it not still published? Uh, it's still a preprint, yes. <laughs> right. So it's it's called uh, a framework for space efficient variable order uh, Markov models, and that's what we'll be talking about today. So it's a way to store uh, a Markov model in a compact way. So it takes uh, takes very little space, uh, and uh, and the paper is a as I said, a very interesting mix of statistics and and some very advanced computer science, to which I hope we'll we'll get. But uh, what is your what is your background, and how did you get into you know computer science and statistics and some biological applications? Uh, well, my background is mostly in computer science. Um, I did a PhD in computer science and then uh, a postdoc in data structures, and that's where. Uh, we actually stumbled upon this problem. Um, so I was doing a postdoc in Helsinki with uh, my, uh, well, with one of my co-authors, Jamal, and uh, the other co-author is actually still a student, PhD student in uh, in Helsinki in the same department. And uh, yeah, so there is this general program, a research program of uh, uh, representing, uh, or let's say implementing uh, the existing uh um, bioinformatics algorithms in less space, so using uh, some space-efficient uh, indexes. I think the term is succinct data structures? Uh, well, succinct, yeah, well, I don't think it's uh, well-defined, succinct, compact, but so some people use succinct to say that the data structure is somehow close to the information-theoretic lower bound. Mm -hmm. um, we don't claim that, so we just say okay. space-efficient. I see. Uh, and yeah, we were writing this book on, um, on let's say, algorithms for uh, bioinformatics, and uh, we stumbled upon this problem of representing in small space um, variable order Markov models. And so yeah, we we started thinking about it, and then uh, we we finally achieved the, the result in this paper. So the, there are a lot of cool things about this. So first of all, as you said on on this preprint, there are three authors: so um, yourself and uh, Yarno Alanko, and uh, Jamal Belazugui. Belazugui, yeah. And uh, all three of you. So two of you, um, you and Jamal, are postdocs, and Yarno is a PhD student. So that's uh, a, a bit unusual in life sciences. And again, this is a computer science paper, but you you published it on BioArchive. Uh, so you think it's uh, it sort of fills in that category of biological papers, but for for biology, it's very unusual that there is no you know PI or professor on the paper. And uh, what's even cooler is that you guys wrote a book. So tell us more about the book. Well, we wrote the book with the supervision of PI, so Vali Makinen, um, in the Department of Computer Science in Helsinki. Uh, University of Helsinki, and um, um, yeah, so in that book we were trying to fill a gap in in the current, uh, let's say, technical books about uh, 
uh, string algorithms and uh, algorithms for bioinformatics in general, um, because we saw that no no book was uh, really describing the the data structures and the algorithms that power uh, bioinformatics pipelines that are used uh, right now. And so, in that book, we try to unify uh, the description of all these. Um, yeah, all these algorithms and data structures and to, to link them together and to give somehow um, a common view um, for them. Yeah, that, that is awesome. And I'm looking forward to reading the book. So it's it sounds like it's a more uh, modern um, right algorithms book for bioinformatics. Because, for example, one book I have is by Dan Gusfield. And uh, it's, uh, it's very well written, very comprehensive. Uh, but for example, it doesn't mention the Burroughs-Wheeler transform or the FM index. It does mention like suffix trees, but not suffix arrays, for example. So yeah, there's a bit of uh, a gap there, and uh, and you just set out to to write such a book, right? That would uh, cover like more modern data structures. Yeah, exactly. So so if uh, what we talk about today. For some of the listeners, this can be a bit overwhelming if they uh, are not yet familiar with uh, all this stuff. We'll try to explain it so that more people can understand it. But if you feel lost, then uh, maybe give this book a try. Yeah, uh, it should be uh, quite detailed, but also hopefully clear. <laughs> well, we did the be- our best to, to make it clear. <laughs> Very cool. So let's get into into the Markov models. What is a Markov model? Uh, so let's assume you want to model, for example, uh, English. Uh, you want to create um, uh, an English sentence that looks uh, realistic, right? So the first thing you could do is you could build uh, like a state machine in which every state is one letter of the alphabet. And then uh, you connect these states with arcs so transitions and you assign uh, a probability to each arc for example you could say uh, when i see a character a in the text it's very likely that i transition to character c okay and you you can get these probabilities from some training corpus so you you have for example a book written in english and you count uh, the frequency of pairs of characters, and you, you infer the probability from that count. Um, so given this model, um, you can now generate a, an artificial uh, sequence from that model. So you start from a random state, and then with some probability uh, that conforms to the probability that is written in your transitions, you, you move to another character. So at each step, the probability of um, seeing a character, so the probability of moving to another character depends only on the character you are at the current moment. Right, so, so you're composing your own words by emitting characters. Yeah. And there is a probability distribution that tells you if if you just emitted a character Q, then with probability 95%, the next character will be you. But yeah. with probability 5%, it could be like this character or, or that character. Exactly. So the, the whole past is basically irrelevant. So once you are in letter Q, uh, you just forget about all your past, essentially. And the probability just depends on the current state. Um, so, of course, you can become, you can try to be more and more realistic by 
associating the states of this model uh, rather than to car to single characters, for example, to dimers, so to two to pairs of characters. Um, for example, QU now becomes a state, um, and as uh, okay, and the number of characters in the state in in a state is called the order or the memory of this model. And, so, so the uh, order is how many characters you look back to determine the probability of the next character. Exactly, exactly. That's your memory. It's how much of the past you're able to remember, essentially. And um, so, for example, for English, it's it's actually a nice uh, coding experiment that you, you can see that uh, the longer or the bigger the order, the more realistic the the sentence you produce actually looks. Yeah, and, and but if you make the order too big, then you start essentially memorizing all the English words. If you, you know, if the average English word is under eight letters, then if you make the order of eight, then you'll be just memorizing all the English words. And this, I guess, shows the problem that you will be addressing, because, of course, to memorize all these words, it takes a lot of memory, right? Yeah, of course, the model. So from a statistical point of view, of course, you the risk of using uh, too big mem a memory is to overfit your training data. So your training data is probably very limited. And um, uh, so the bigger the order, the bigger the model. So the model grows exponentially on the, on the memory. So it's sigma to the k, where k is the order, and sigma is the size of the alphabet. So of course you you pay exponentially more memory in the computer, but also you have exponentially more parameters that you have to fit from the from the data, and your data is constant probably. So it's it's a problem statistically. It's a problem in space uh, in in the computer. Yeah, and it's also a problem, let's say, of reliability. So the longer the the states essentially the the less likely they are to occur in your training data, and therefore you have just fewer samples from which you have to to infer these transitions, because ultimately these transitions uh, are based on counts. And uh, if you see one uh, one state just twice, can you really be confident of the emission probability? But so far, uh, this sounds a bit contrived. Like it sounds like someone would do in their computer science assignment. Uh, generate some random English-looking words. Uh, but uh, what does this all have to do with biology? So let's say uh, building a model that is able to uh, generate artificial um, instances of your, uh, for example, of English, is a way to, uh, to capture somehow the features of the English language. And in the same way, you could say that... Uh, uh, creating a model, for example, of, of a family of protein sequences is a way to capture the composition of the protein sequences, and therefore uh, you can use this to, for example, to assign a new protein to a family. So in other words, once you have the, uh, the a Markov model for a set of sequences or for training data in general, you can use it to compute um, the probability that a new uh, sequence somehow comes from the same model. And this is precisely the use in biology. So, for example, um, I mentioned proteins before because um, it has been much easier to get the sequence of the protein, of a, pro a protein, uh, than um, 
for example, its three-dimensional structure or to understand its function. So once you have, for example, a family of proteins that you know have the same structure or the same biological function, you can, um, given a new protein, you can somehow assign a probability to the sequence of the new protein. So essentially a, the, a probability that the sequence of the new protein comes from the same source um, as the, uh, let's say, your family of proteins. And uh, therefore, you this probability should somehow capture whether the new protein has that structure or function or not. Right. So there are essentially two things we can do with a Markov model. And this is typical for this class of statistical models that are called generative models uh, yeah. as opposed to discriminative models. And with generative models, one thing you can do is to generate new data. So as you said, we can generate new uh, sort of English words. But uh, another thing, once you have a generative model, you can actually score existing words and say how likely it is that they were generated by this process and not by some other process. So going back to the um, going back to the English analogy, we could say we could build a model for say uh, English words and separately a different Markov model for Finnish words. And then we can, if we have an unknown word, which we don't know which alphabet it comes from or which uh, which language, which dictionary it comes from, we can uh, run it through both Markov models and see how much likely it is to be uh, an English word versus a Finnish word. And so the, the same thing could be done for uh, protein sequences, right? We, yeah. we have two protein families and we run through all the amino acids we build a markov model and then we can classify new proteins or maybe new new genes right for nucleic acids and and so on yeah exactly markov models have also been used for gene detection so you have a newly sequenced genome and you you want for example to tag all putative uh, subsequences that are genes um and also for metagenomics uh, binning. So you have a um, metagenomic sample, which is just a, a set of reads that don't come from the same species, but come from maybe thousands of different species, and you want to cluster them into bins in which each bin should correspond to a separate species. And to do that, you could, for example, use some sort of k-means-like approach in which you start from a random uh, partition into sets, and then you build a Markov model for each set, and you reassign the reads to each model, and you you keep going, essentially, until the process converges to, to realistic beans. Although here we have to, to be a bit careful not to confuse uh, these Markov models with hidden Markov models, which uh, they, sh- they share the same underlying mathematical concept of Markov models, but the, the specifics and the applications are a bit different. And I think uh, maybe you know some algorithms that use like simple Markov models for uh, gene uh, prediction, but I think it's, it is more common to use hidden Markov models for gene detection because then you have this hidden state which corresponds to the the feature of the genome, whether it's a, a gene or an intron or an exon or a promoter. And uh, uh, 
you you go through through your genome and you infer this this hidden state. So it's again it's a Markov model, but in that case we do not observe the state of the Markov model, but only observe some kind of projection of that uh, of that state. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to handcraft these hidden Markov models somehow to tune them to. To your application, for example, one state could be I'm in the coding part of the genome, and another state I'm in could be I'm in the non-coding part. And then, according to which of the two states I'm in, I will have a different emission probability of of the characters that I can observe. So, hidden Markov models are called hidden because, precisely as you said, you don't you don't have access to the state. Um, whereas in our traditional Markov model. Um, you actually see the state because it's just the, the last K characters. Um, hidden Markov models have also been used for this protein, uh, let's say, classification problem. But uh, I would say the advantage of our approach, or let's say of our Markov models uh, compared to hidden Markov models, is that they don't require, for example, alignment, and they don't require, let's say, handcrafted or handcrafting the, the structure of the model. So, for example, if you have a family of proteins, uh, what is typically done is the following. You take all the proteins and you compute a multiple sequence alignment, um, and you infer the hidden Markov model from that alignment. And, of course, computing multiple sequence alignment is um, expensive in theory and in practice. Um, moreover... Performing some key computations on hidden Markov models is somehow quadratic, so it it depends on the product of the length of the of your sequence and the size of the of the model. Whereas in our approach, you just look up the last k characters and you you infer the probability of the next. So it can be implemented in a, in linear time on the on the query or on the new sequence. Yeah, that, that's very interesting uh, to to compare this to. And another concept that comes to mind first because you mentioned alignment-free algorithms, and second because of the structure of Markov model itself. So what comes to mind is Kamer-based approaches because a Markov model, in a way, not quite, but but similar to just a probability distribution on Kamers. So I think if you have a probability distribution on Kamers and K plus one MERS. You can essentially infer your Markov models from there, and so a Markov model is um, is a different variation on the on this theme of um, using the distribution of k-mers to to classify a sequence. Yeah, yeah, you are perfectly on the spot here. Um, so maybe the key advantage of this approach is that it's alignment free, so you don't need to do multiple sequence alignment on your training data. You don't need to uh, do explicit modeling. You just take uh, your input data as it is and somehow infer the probabilities by by these counts of K-MERS and K plus one MERS. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, as with K-MERS, we have to choose the size of the K-MER, the, the K itself, uh, and likewise, with Markov models, we have to choose the order of the Markov model, so the amount of memory it has or the amount of look back it, it can do to determine the probability of the next character. 
And so, as we mentioned before, uh, there are trade-offs. So if you have, uh, if you make the order too small, then it's not very realistic and will not capture all the structure that the, our data has to offer. On the other hand, if you make it too long, then first you have uh, you have to use a lot of memory to store the model itself because you have to store all the contexts. Um, and uh, second, you have the statistical problems that, that you mentioned because uh, the estimates of these probability transitions are uh, less precise. So you have you propose a specific. A way to address this trade-off called a variable order Markov model. So it's sort of taking the best of, of the both worlds. Uh, and what is a variable order Markov model? Okay, so first of all, that's not what uh, I mean. We are not the first to propose variable order Markov models. We're right. just you, proposing, you advocate yeah. its use. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, if you. If you will, a variable order Markov model is a way to compress um, a fixed order Markov model in which you have a large memory um, and you somehow, so a large number of states, and you somehow compress um, subsets of these states into a single state. So it's, it's really a way to make a big a fixed order Markov model smaller. And, um, and to clarify, a state in a Markov model is this context, is a sequence of letters, yeah. right? Because that that's your state. Like whatever you see prior to the current letters, you're analyzing current letter and you see some letters before. So that's those are letters taking uh, cumulatively, right? Yeah. yeah. T- taken together is your state. And based on the state, based on that context or, or prefix, you determine the uh, the next letter, the probability of the next letter. Yeah, and the compression happens uh, as follows intuitively. So you just, uh, you might observe that many uh, states uh, have the very similar uh, emission probabilities and um, you could just compress them into a single state if their emission probabilities are actually so close. So for example, if you have um, an English text and you you see... You have a state of, you have a memory of size 100, okay? And you see that all the sequences of length 100 that end with the word coffee without the final E um, have the same probability distributions. You can actually, uh, and, and they will probably have the same probability, the same emission probability because they will all emit just E very likely. So you can compress all these states that are very long, so they have length 100 each. You could actually compress them in a single state, and you could even assign to that state um, the word coffee without the last E, rather than all these different sequences that end with coffee and have a, have a lot of characters before it. So you're essentially removing a prefix from all these contexts and collapsing them into, uh, into a state that corresponds to a suffix of them. Right, right. It's uh, a very good explanation. Or there, there is also a dual way to look at it, which is you can enlarge your context up to a certain limit if you see a gain in in doing that. So you can start with a context of one ladder and then look back another ladder. And if you see a gain in your discriminative, discriminative ability... Right, and you can enlarge and, and prolong that context back to the left, 
until until you see that adding new letters or knowing uh, farther and farther letters doesn't really help you to determine more precisely the probability of the next letter. Exactly. So in general, um, with variable order Markov models, the states uh, are sequences of uh, potentially different lengths. Um, and uh, choosing the states is in general a problem of uh, testing some property of um, subsequences of the training data. So um, in theory, it's like going through all the subsequences of the training data and testing whether you should use this subsequence as a context or not. Okay, and uh, now let's get to the problem of actually storing a Markov model, which which is what your uh, paper is about. So first of all, let's forget for a second about a um, variable order Markov model. If you just have a simple fixed order Markov model, how do you store it in computer memory? Uh, well, you could, for example, take all the uh, all the sequences that correspond to to your um, states, which are all the k-mers, so all the sequences of length k of the training data, and uh, store them in a so-called a try. So it's um, it's a tree data structure in which every edge has a label which corresponds to one character of the alphabet. So you end up with a with a tree, with a full tree, because you're storing all the uh, subsequences of length k, and uh, in every leaf of the tree you store the transition probabilities, for example. Right, so one way to think about this as a decision tree. So once you go from right to left, you go farther, uh, or, or actually you can go either way, but basically you go through your camer and you have a decision tree where each node tells you if if the current character is A, you go this way. If it's B, you go that way. And so you have this uh, this tree that uh, one by one character leads you to the final probability distribution. So once you reach the leaf of the tree, then you get your treasure. You get your probability distribution of the of the next character. Yeah, you're right. And the tree is actually storing uh, the the sequences inverted, so from right to left, because you're at each position in your query, you have to to look back in the past. So you look at the previous character and then at the following character and so on. So the try is actually storing this your states from right to left. I mean, you, you could do either way, right? If it's fixed order, you could just as well look from from left to right. Yeah, sure. Right, and and there are also some more clever ways to 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 store a a fixed uh, order mark of models but it's probably outside of of the scope of this discussion um but um for variable order mark of models this translates directly so you could also use a try to store a variable mark of model although there you do have to go from right to left because these are no longer fixed gamers, but these are variable length strings, right? Yeah, exactly. But the idea is exactly the same. So you you go back until, um, well, until you you want essentially. So now you have the problem of when do you stop, for, uh, or how to select the context at each position. You could yeah. So what what to put in into that try? No. Okay. So there is the first problem: what to put in the try which is the training somehow of the of the model and then when you're scoring 
when you're assigning a probability to, to your query string, you have to choose which context uh, you want to use. Because, for example, um, different suffixes of, of your past could be contexts, right? So but wouldn't crit- you always want to use the longest one? One criterion is to use always the longest one, but there are variants. Okay. And so here's a very simple, very elegant implementation in terms of this try or this decision tree. And uh, we, I don't know, maybe we'll talk later or we won't talk about how to populate the tree, how to select uh, those contexts. But just in terms of how to store that tree or that try, what's what's the problem with it? Like it it seems very efficient and uh, there is no duplication. So a, a very uh, naive way to store a Markov model is just have a giant, I don't know, hash table mapping from context to probability distributions. And uh, that that wouldn't work in, in a variable order Markov model. That would work in a fixed order Markov model because you have a fixed gamer. You could just put it in the hash table. Um, and there we would have a lot of duplication because um, many gamers share uh, their suffixes. We would store this repetitive sequences but um, with a try implementation there is no redundancy there is no duplication because the common suffix is stored just once so this seems at first like a very efficient data structure to to use for our variable order or a fixed order mark of uh, model and yet you see a problem with it right yeah, well, there might still be duplication in the prefixes, but because we are merging just the suffixes, but or any substring actually. But the real problem oh, that, is that's that, a good point. Yeah, yeah, but the real problem is that, um, well, okay. So it all depends on how you select this context to be put in the data structure. So if you're very stringent on your statistical criteria to to choose a substring of the training data as a context then you have very few contexts or maybe you have many contexts but they're short and uh, even the try uh, is very small um i mean even the try representation with pointers and etc is still very small and manageable uh but if your uh, context selection criterion is somehow weaker you end up with a large number of contexts and in principle the number of contexts can be equal to the number of distinct substrings of uh, any length uh, in your training data. And um, a try in that case would be quadratic in the size of your training data. So um, if you actually try one of these implementations, try-based implementations of a variable order Markov model, they really explode in size if you, if you change these um, uh, criteria for context selection. Okay, so quadratic, but still, still not exponential, right? As as we might fear. Oh, so quadratic in the in the length of your training data. So if your training data is length. a collection, uh-huh. yeah. If your training data is a collection of genomes, you don't want to be quadratic in gigabytes of data. How exactly does that come into play? Like, why would uh, why would the size of the training data matter? Because your upper bound, or I, I guess because your true upper bound, which is exponential, is much larger than that, right? Yeah, so there is no, the the exponential upper bound is very weak uh, because it's the possible, the set of all possible 
um, strings of of length. But that's uh, exponential in the order, but that's constant regarding the training data. But in, in, in practice, you would say that it's actually a larger bound, right? So if you have a fixed order, you have a linear number of distinct k-mers in your training data. So linear in the size of the training data, right? Because there is a linear number of positions from which you can start to select a substring of length k. So there, there are two, there are two different upper bounds. One is linear, one, one is constant. But in practice, the constant is so huge that you would prefer the linear one. Yeah, of course. So if, yeah, uh, if k is very large, uh, the, the exponential upper bound is kind of weak. And so you're saying that, uh, how can we, how could it turn out to be quadratic? So the problem is when you don't have an upper bound. So remember in variable order Markov models, you, you don't, you don't necessarily specify uh, a maximum length of your context. You're just ah, selecting right. context according to some uh, measure of interest or let's say gain in keeping the context or not, and not necessarily on its length. So in the worst case, you're picking all possible substrings, uh, all distinct substrings of your training data. And this can be quadratic. And so you claim that you can do better than quadratic with variable order Markov models. Uh, yeah. So there was already a paper that did better than quadratic uh, and was based on the suffix tree, uh, not surprisingly. So the suffix tree is uh, another tree uh, that is built on the training data, but its size is linear in the, si in the size of the training data. And what we actually do is to... Um, let's say, improve on the suffix tree in practice because the suffix tree, even though asymptotically it's linear, um, in practice it has a very big cont constant when it's actually implemented in, in a computer. So the way we can do better than, uh, than this quadratic bound, the, the way you can achieve the linear bound, is by saying that the context will not be arbitrary, right? But they will follow um, a certain pattern. They will ha all have a certain property. And that property is basically being a repeat, right? So can you introduce that, that concept of maximal repeat? Yeah, so, so essentially there are some statistical criteria to select uh, a substring to be a context or not. And uh, these criteria are very natural. For example, uh, you typically want a context to emit a character uh, with a probability that is significantly different from, for example, a suffix of the context. So you don't want to to make the context shorter and still have essentially the same probability distribution. Otherwise, you say the context is not interesting. So for a context to be interesting, you want it, its emissions to be very different from what you could achieve with a shorter context. And it's nice that uh, for a family of these statistical criteria, you can show that the, the context that you would end up selecting are a subset of the so-called maxima repeats. So a maxima repeat is just a substring um, that uh, occurs at least twice in the training data. So it repeats itself exactly. And it cannot be extended to the right or to the left with even a single character without uh, changing its frequency. So essentially, 
if you add even a single character to the right or even a single character to the left of this repeat, so you make it longer, then you start losing some occurrences of the repeat in your training data. And and so we can further partition this maximal repeats into left maximal repeats and right maximal repeats, depending on whether you can or cannot extend them to the left or, or to the right. And uh, one of these conditions is, to me, much more natural than the other one. Specifically, the the left maximal repeat makes a lot of sense because, remember, we're predicting the current character based on the previous character that we've just seen. And so we're asking ourselves how far to the left should we extend our context to be able to predict this current character. And so it's natural to require that the context is a left maximal repeat, but um, how does the property of being a right maximal repeat come into play? Because that, that's uh, the right side of our context is predetermined. We do not control it. We know precisely, uh, you know, where it, where it ends on the right because it's right before the current character. And so how, how does that property come about? So first of all, a maximal repeat must be both left maximal and right maximal. So uh, in general, a repeat um, might be right maximal, but not left or vice versa. And you're right. Yeah, uh, you tend to choose uh, repeats that are left maximal because um, as context, because if something is not left maximal, then you can always extend it to the left and keep the same frequency. So uh, the statistics uh, on the right of that repeat do not change if you extend it to the left uh, until it's left maximal. Or vice versa, contract it, because it makes more sense to contract it right? yeah. to, to take less space. Yeah. Uh, about right maximality, it comes from intuitively from some um, uh, criteria based on entropy. So you want, for some reason, your context to be um, to have a high entropy in their emission probability. And of course, just requiring high entropy implies um, that you you must be right maximal. So you must have at least two distinct characters to the right. Uh, and you one can actually show that the the formulas that require uh, high entropy actually translate into having maximum repeats as contexts. Um, so other criteria to choose uh, context um, actually end up in uh, putting into this uh, set of contexts uh, substrings that are not maximum repeats, but left extensions by one character of maximum repeats. So I would say all the intuitive way to, to decide whether a string of the training data is a context or not uh, end up very likely into creating a left extension by one of a maximum repeat, which is not necessarily right maximal. And there are some criteria that insist on having high entropy and, and therefore require also right maximality. Yeah, and we argued uh, about this a bit over email and... Uh... I also want to bring it up here. So the problem with that criterion, as I see it, and I, I don't, uh, I don't yet fully understand why, why it is the case. But um, you, you brought up this example of coffee, right? That um, uh, if uh, if you have a 
maximal context of 100, but uh, this context all end with coffee without the final E, then you know pretty much that the next letter uh, will be E. But uh, then, by definition, that's n not a maximal repeat. So how would, how would your model handle that or, or your context selection process? It will, it will not select coffee as, as, the, as the context? Again, it depends on your context selection. Uh, yeah, you might, according to this uh, subfamily, yeah, you would not select it because it's not... Uh, coffee without the last E is probably not the maximum repeat. And so what would it select as a context in that case? Well, it would select the longest suffix of uh, of your past, that is a maximum repeat, and has been marked as a context. So uh, would it, it select some, your... something... It, it won't select something smaller, right? But that's, that's still not a maximum repeat. So it has to select something longer. It could be. I mean, something... A suffix of coffee without E might be a maximum repeat and uh, depends on your training data. Hmm. Um, for example, double uh, FE might be a maximum repeat. I don't know. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. So uh, this is not a monotonic property. So you, you, you can either either sort of contract it or expand it. It still could be like it, it could alternate between being a maximal repeat and not being a maximal repeat, something like that. Yes, it is. It is not monotonic. You can, if you take a suffix of a maximum repeat, you you can be. You might not be a maximum repeat. But this property of your contexts being maximal repeat or like extension by one character of maximal repeats, this is a, apparently a very useful property because that that is what allows you to store this model more compactly than you would be able otherwise. Yeah, so this is already the thing that enables the suffix tree-based uh, approach. Maybe this is a good place to define the suffix tree. So it's a it's a very simple co uh, concept at first. It's just a tree built out of all the suffixes of a given string. Exactly. It's a compact tree, let's say. So you first build the, the tree on the set of suffixes of the training data. And then you compact the unary paths. So you, you replace um, a path in this tree that consists only on nodes that have one child, you you compact this whole path that can be arbitrarily long um, into a single edge of the tree. So now the, the tree is not a tree anymore because um, the edges of the tree are not labeled by single characters of the alphabet, but they can be labeled by arbitrarily long substrings. Yeah, and, and that's how you achieve the linear space because otherwise it would be quadratic. Exactly. Right. So it's a very um, it's a very simple concept at first, but first it's very powerful, um, and uh, and also like very non obvious how you can achieve this linear space and actual linear uh, time when when building it. So it's a it's a pretty cool concept, and. Uh, can you describe how to use a suffix tree to store a variable order marker model? So you you could essentially show that the try uh, that we described before as a naive uh, representation of a variable order marker model um, is essentially a subgraph of another tree, which is related to the suffix tree, which is called the suffix link tree. And this tree is essentially a byproduct of the many 
uh, algorithms that build the suffix tree. And um, it's essentially built on the same nodes as the suffix tree, but um, it uses as edges the so-called Weiner links that are the reverse of the suffix links. Uh, so it's still a try. Remember, the suffix tree is a compact try. And uh, the suffix link tree is again a try. So every edge is labeled by a single character. And that's why it's essentially similar to the um, to the try of context that you want to represent. Right, but it is a reduced try. So you don't store, you don't use all the nodes of the original suffix tree. So not all the suffixes, right? But the suffixes, there are themselves... Uh, is it maximal repeats or just write maximal repeats? So the nodes of the suffix tree are write maximal repeats. Suffix link tree. Well, suffix link tree and suffix tree have the same set of nodes, and which are the write maximal substrings of the training data. And the difference is just the edges or the direction, if you will. So the suffix tree um, reads the characters from left to right, and the suffix link tree if you will, starting from the root reads the characters from right to left. Right, right. So the set of nodes is the same, and then you can you can show that the your try of suff of contexts that you want to store is a somehow is a subgraph of this suffix link tree. Why why is it a subgraph and, and not simply that graph, the, the suffix link tree? Because the suffix link tree is just uh, an index on the on the entire training data, but what you want right. to store so you, you is will theory... se- select only some of these groups. Yeah, exactly as context. Yeah, I, j- I just want to spend a minute, uh, you know, to underscore how how amazing this data structure is. So you have a suffix tree, right, and uh, and you have a suffix link tree, and they they're both tries, but they're tries passing those suffixes in different directions. You build one by building the other one. Yeah, precisely. That's just amazing. That's very beautiful. Yeah, this data structure was invented in the 70s, 73, and it's still very rich in (laughs) properties that we are still exploiting today. But but your paper doesn't end there because it's, um, you know, you, you use so many... Uh, just different data structures. You just use them as building blocks and then, you know, build something beautiful out of it. So apart from the suffix tree and suffix link tree, so you use the Burrs-Willard transform and you use use wavelet trees, right? Um, What else do you use? We don't use much, actually. (laughs) We use the Burrs-Willard transform represented as a wavelet tree. Yeah. And, um, And the topology of the suffix tree and of the suffix link tree. Right, so you use a specific representation of, of those topologies that is also like very efficient. Yeah, so our paper is actually is is a way to, to make a very space efficient, if you will, the approach uh, based on the suffix tree, although we use a very different algorithm for, for that. Um, and as a building block, we also use another uh, algorithm for computing matching statistics, where this is a oh, yeah, that's another yet one. a new concept. <laughs> but it's a new concept, but it's very natural in this context because uh, the matching statistics of your... So you want to compute the matching statistics of your query string with respect to some training data again. 
What and is the mansion statistics? Yeah, the definition is is just an array uh, of length equal to the length of your query. And at each position of that array, you put the length of the longest um, string that ends at that position and that in the query, and that occurs somewhere, anywhere in your training data. Okay, so, so let's start with a query. What What is our query in this case? Well, it might still be a, a new protein that you want to to compute the probability. Okay, that, that that's that's the whole thing, right? It's not a specific context; it's the whole thing. Yeah, the query is uh, is the whole string. You right, want the, to, the query yeah. is the the thing that we want to compute the probability of according yeah. to the Markov model. Yeah. Okay. As a building block, we compute this matching statistics. So at every position, you essentially look back in the past as much as you can while still occurring your training data. Okay, so our training data is another string, or or um, could it be like many strings, or do we have to concatenate them to in order to make it a training data? Mm, yes, you you should concatenate them. Okay, so um, our training data is one big string, and uh, when we want to compute the probability of our query, which is another string, then we, at each position, we ask what's the longest, uh, what's the longest uh, context. Yeah. So eventually, you want to know what is the longest context that ends at that position. Right. Right. But uh, it, it's somehow natural as a building block to just uh, wanting to know what is the longest string that ends at that position of the query, and that also appears in the training data. Mm-hmm. And this is what matching statistics does. Right. So that's the matching statistic. So you do not, as far as I remember, you do not store it, but you compute it on the fly? Yeah, exactly. Well, storing it, well, first of all, we don't need to store it because that's not the output uh, that the user wants. And also it would be too too much. I mean, it would take too much space. So we can maintain this value on the fly as we as we scan the query from left to right, for example. Right. So, so what what pieces of data do you need to compute the matching statistic on uh, once you're processing the query? Yeah, for that we need um, the Barrows-Wheeler transform. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the topology of the of some suffix tree. In this case, if you're scanning from left to right, you need the topology of the suffix tree of the reverse of the training data. This is technical, but. And and the topology in this case means that you don't care about the labels on edges or nodes. You just want to to see the shape of of the tree. Exactly, the topology is essentially a representation of the of just the nodes and edges of the of the suffix tree. Yeah, which which is also amazing. Like if if you just look at at this drawing of a tree, it doesn't tell you much. Like it's it's very not non obvious how to how to do something useful with adjusted topology when you, once you erase all the all the labels but then you combine this topology with other pieces of data right and you can sort of reconstruct yeah this the is uh, yeah somehow this combination of topology and barrows wheeler transform and this commuting between the two uh, is also the the fundamental principle behind another data structure which is called the compressed suffix tree so it allows you to somehow simulate a number of operations on the uh, original suffix tree, let's say, with in smaller space. Is that explained in your book, the compressed suffix tree? 
I think so. <laughs> okay. So essentially, yeah, we need as a building blocks the Boros-Wheeler transform, the topology of the suffix tree, and then of the reverse, and the topology of the suffix link tree of the training data. All right. Should, should we explain what a Burroughs-Wheeler transform is? Because it's it's a another very important concept in bioinformatics. Yeah. So it's if you will, it's one of the. It's related to many other popular data structures on strings, like the suffix tree, the suffix array. They're all somehow the projections of the same underlying structure of the of the text. Um, so the Burroughs-Wheeler transform is essentially a permutation of the original string that has two properties that are useful. So first of all, it's invertible, so you can recreate the original data from it. And um, the second property is that repetitions in the string uh, tend to create runs in the Burroughs-Wheeler transform, where a run is a sequence uh, that contains just one character. So it's a long sequence of the same character that appears contiguously. Yeah, and people may be familiar with the uh, Burroughs Wheel Transform, for example, if if you ever used uh, uh, BZIP2. Uh, so if you download maybe some source code and it has extension of .tar.bz2, then it's compressed using the Burroughs Wheel Transform. Yeah, the history of the Burroughs Wheel Transform is very interesting. So it was introduced as a compression device precisely because it has these two properties. Um, but around here, 2000, it was somehow repurposed as a full text index. Uh, so this uh, other popular data structure, which is called FM index, is based on the Burroughs-Wheeler transform and on some way to compute uh, rank uh, somehow on this uh, on this sequence to to allow essentially searching for any substring of the text. Yeah, and uh, so another, uh, continuing this theme, another thing where you can uh, know Burroughs-Wheeler is that uh, many aligners, so uh, for example, BWA and Bowtie, so the letters BW there in these names actually stand for Burroughs-Wheeler. Yeah, around uh, 2009, there was this um, explosion of uh, uh, Burroughs-Wheeler-based aligners, and they all use this property that you can search, that you can do exact full-text search in small space and even uh, practically very fast using this uh, Barswiller transform. Right. So so it takes the same amount of space as the original, or even, even less because it's more compressible, and yet you can search more efficiently in it if you, if you have some other pieces of information. Uh, yeah. And so, given how many different structures are used in your work, uh, we won't be able to explain how it works. But uh, can you give a sort of high-level overview, high-level understanding of like how these different data structures, how these different pieces of information I- interact to bring us to the final answer? Yeah, so it's... Um... More or less, we described all the key ingredients. So the first very important ingredient is that the the context we're interested in, even though they have different lengths potentially, they all sit somehow close to maximum repeats. And the maximum repeats are a subset of the nodes of the suffix tree. 
and therefore they're also a subset of the nodes of the suffix link tree. The other ingredient we already described uh, is matching statistics. So we are able to project, if you will, the, the process of looking for the longest context or for an interesting context uh, at every position of the query by um, computing the matching statistics of that position and computing the, the position of that matching statistics in the suffix tree. So the matching statistic uh, tells you the longest potential context or, or the longest, um, you know, suffix that occurs in the training data, and the context must be smaller than the suffix. Is that correct? Precisely, yeah. It, and, it can't uh, be longer because that doesn't even occur in the training data. So it can't possibly be longer. Exactly. And uh, so we don't just compute the length at each step, but we compute the locus, so-called, so the, the position of this matching statistics in the suffix tree. Um, and once you have that, you can um, easily move to to the context that you actually want um, if you have built suitable data structures during training. Uh, the third ingredient that we use is this um, overlap between the suffix tree of the reverse of the training data and the suffix link tree of the forward. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, That's very this, natural. Uh, that's like obvious. That's the most natural part of our work. <laughs> and <laughs> But somehow it is because uh, I told you before that the suffix tree is a compact try, right? So every edge might correspond to a long string, not necessarily to one character. Uh, whereas the suffix link tree is a try. So every edge corresponds to exactly one character. Oh, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And I also told you that the suffix tree is somehow reading from left to right and the suffix link tree is reading from right to left. Right. So, th so to put them in the same direction, we have to reverse one of you them. You have to reverse them. Yeah. And then the third uh, easy property is that, um, Maxima repeats are nodes in the suffix tree and also nodes in the suffix link tree. And once you use the suffix tree of the forward, let's say, and the suffix link tree of the reverse, these maxima repeats um, occur in the same pre-order. They occur in the same order when you traverse the two trees. At what point do we do we get to maximal repeats? Because the the nodes in the suffix tree are right maximal repeats, so they just go go to the right as, as far as possible, but at what point do they also become left maximal repeats? This is very interesting. So maximal repeat, if you look at the suffix tree, maximal repeats form, uh, let's say, a subgraph. It's not a subtree. It's uh, a subset of nodes uh, rooted at the root of the suffix tree. Uh, so essentially, if a node is a maximal repeat, then all its ancestors in the suffix tree are also maximal repeats. So it's somehow this uh, uh, subgraph that lies at the top of the suffix tree. So if you start from the root and you go down in the suffix tree, at some point you lose this property of being a maxima repeat. So there is this top part that is somehow um, the place of the locus of maxima repeats. Mm -hmm. And what, why do you say it's a subgraph? Why is it not a subtree? Is it because it's, it's not necessarily connected? It is connected, but you don't... So a sub, in a subtree, you say the subtree rooted at node X, okay, means that, that you take the whole graph that starts at node X 
downwards. But in our case, you don't, you don't do that. It's just some property of being close when you take a, your, your parent or so your So it's ancestor. still a tree. It's still, it's still a, tree, a tree and it's yeah. a subgraph of the original tree. Yeah. But it doesn't have this sort of closure property. Yeah. It's, it's not closed downwards, but if you will, it's closed upwards. Mm-hmm. Because whenever you, you go up, you, from a node in the tree, you know, in the subtree, you know, in the subgraph, you know that you're also in the subgraph. This is a truncated tree. Yes. And so you can, you can actually show that this part, this top part of the suffix tree, um, can be overlapped with the suffix uh, link tree of the reverse. Um, and by overlapping, I mean just visually putting one tree on top of the other in such a way that the unary paths in the suffix link tree become the edges in the, in the suffix tree. So remember, every edge of the suffix tree is a, is a string, potentially is labeled by a string and not by a single character. And so overlapping these two trees effectively is decomposing these edges into uh, unary paths again. Hmm. Interesting. So this property is used to actually measure the length of maximum repeats, uh, the string length. Okay. So one, once you look at into the matching statistic and you know the, the locus of, of this um, matching part in the training data, yeah. What do you do next? Like, what's the flow of information there? What, starting from that position, how do you how do you proceed? So, um, as we compute matching statistics, um, we know the locus, so the position of the of the matching statistics string in the suffix tree, um, and therefore we can somehow check whether it is a context or not. And if it is a context, um, we might. Uh, immediately use the emission probability from from it. Uh, otherwise, we um, we can just move upwards. So we take a suffix of the uh, of the matching statistics. So a, a shorter history, if you will, of the of the query that is marked as context in the suffix tree, and we can jump in constant time to it uh, using a, a lowest market ancestor data structure, which is yet another component that we need. And that just allows you, given any tree and uh, a subset of, with a subset of nodes marked, to jump from one node to the, to the to the lowest um, to the lowest marked node that is uh, an ancestor. And what what is the data structure holding the actual um, probability distributions? So the probability distributions are somehow represented implicitly in the Burroughs-Wheeler transform. Um, so um, as we compute matching statistics, we keep the so-called interval of the matching statistics string in the Burroughs-Wheeler. So the Burroughs-Wheeler has this property that every substring of the training data or of the, of the string from which it is built um, corresponds to uh, an interval, a compact interval in the, in the Burroughs-Wheeler transform. So for example, if you have, if you have again string offy, Okay, so which is coffee without the first character C. The string offy corresponds to uh, a compact range in the Burroughs Wheeler transform. Uh, so it corresponds to all the suffixes of your training data that start with the string offy. And the Burroughs Wheeler contains in that interval all the characters that precede your string. So it will just contain a, a sequence of characters C. 
so uh, in other words if we if we keep the the Burroughs relay in the right direction uh, depending on whether we are scanning the query from left to right or right to left uh, and if we maintain this interval at every step we can actually see the the counts of characters that follow the the matching statistics uh, and therefore we can compute these uh, uh, estimates of, of emission probability Wow, that that that's amazing, right? So you don't even like when when you're training, you don't even have to compute like this is the fraction of of this context that followed that is followed by this letter. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, we compute it on the fly, and uh, moreover, if if you store the run length encoded BWT, so we if you compress the BWT by using exactly this property of Seeing always C before Offy, then um, you can use even less space, but still uh, provide these counts when you need them. Right. I have just one question. So, but uh, looking at the paper, I think you store BWT so the Burroughs will transform of the original text and not the reverse. In the in that case, wouldn't that give you exactly as you say, like the C of Offy, but not the E of Coffee? Exactly. Uh, we actually store the Burroughs will of the reverse. And the topology of the suffix tree of the reverse, and okay. <laughs> the topology of the suffix link tree of the forward. <laughs> okay, so it's it's a Burroughs of the reverse string. Yeah, so somehow this um, this variable order Markov model and these Markov models in general have a directionality, right? You you mm-hmm. might want to score your query in both directions, for example, uh, before deciding whether the protein belongs to your family or not. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, or, and f- if your query, for example, is a read uh, from high throughput sequencing and the read contains uh, an error somehow, uh, you might want to use somehow the the left or the right context according to to the one that gives maybe the, the largest score. Because if one of them contains the error, you're just um, somehow getting a, a bad probability estimate because of that error. Right. And to to summarize, what is the the memory and the time requirements of, of your algorithm? Like if we have the the size of the training data, the size of the query, what space and time is, is required there? Yeah, so um if the training data is of length n on alphabet sigma, uh, you require n log big O of n log sigma uh, bits of space. Um for representing the the variable order Markov model, right? So it's, it's essentially uh, so it's linear in the in the training data. Yeah, and of course we and it's linear, and the time is um, uh, m log sigma, where m is the length of the query. So it's right. again linear in the in the length of the query, and doesn't depend on the, on the size of the training data. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can shrink. So that's what actually the, the paper is mainly about: is to uh, to shrink this uh, um, this big O of n log sigma even more uh, by exploiting the fact that the training data might itself be repetitive. So if the training set data is repetitive, then the Burroughs-Wheeler transform becomes very compressible. Uh, so you can run length encode it. And then you can somehow prune the topologies of the suffix tree and of the suffix link tree and keep only the maximum repeat part. So this 
this top part of the suffix three that I mentioned before. Right, right. So, so that wouldn't be apparent in the asymptotic bounds, but that that's just the the constant factors or or the expected sort of constant factors, right? In in your complexity. Uh, well, it would somehow show up in the asymptotics if you explicitly say. Uh, well, if you explicitly um, mention the number of maximum repeats. So somehow we are able to bound the size of the resulting representation by the number of left extensions by one character of maximum repeats. Mm -hmm. And the intuition there is that if if the training data is very repetitive, the number of maximum repeats should be small. And so in practice, you have this implemented, right, in uh, as a library? In what language? Uh, it's implemented in C++. Um, I'm not sure it's a library that you can just call. So for now, it's a more uh, still a prototype, although very stable and uh, quite modular. All right, Fabio. Um, it was a fascinating discussion. A lot of uh, things to, to pick up your book and, and read about. Um, and uh, thank you for coming in the podcast. Thanks. It was a pleasure.